Dear friends in Christ, welcome to this podcast from All Saints Episcopal Church in Portland. All Saints is a loving, welcoming parish serving Southeast Portland for over a century. Our purpose is to celebrate God's love, seek and serve Christ in all persons, and go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Today, we invite you to join the Reverend Andrea Skornick as she preaches the gospel and explores the mysteries of God in our modern world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Mother of us all, Amen. I remember hearing an interview a while back with actor William H. Macy. And in that interview, he was asked how he could play the despicable character he portrays in the series, Shameless, and then empathize with him enough to be able to play that character realistically. His response was that we are all the heroes of our own story. This is so true. We are inclined to see ourselves in a positive light. What's more, when it comes to sin and doing wrong, rarely does someone plan out their trespass and think, oh, I'm going to do something really terrible. It's like we see in so many of the anti-hero shows, like Ozark or Breaking Bad, where ordinary accountants and school teachers become drug lords. Or as the Hemingway quote says, it happens gradually and then suddenly. It is the sum total of a lot of small, seemingly justifiable choices along the way, or compromises we make because we let ourselves think we don't have another choice. Yes, we are the hero of our own story, even as we might be the villain of someone else's. A great example comes to us in Hebrew scripture in the story of King David. It begins, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent out Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, but David remained in Jerusalem. Hint, David was not where he was supposed to be. While hanging out, he becomes desirous of a woman named Bathsheba, who he sees bathing on a rooftop. So he has her brought to the castle. Soon after that visit, she's expecting. But all the men, including her husband Uriah, are off at war, so this does not look good. David calls her husband to come home for a respite and be with his wife and help cover things up. But the plan doesn't work because David, uh, because Uriah, who is a very devoted soldier, insists that he stay outside the gate in solidarity with the other men and not accept that special treatment. When the plan doesn't work, David sends Uriah to the front of battle where he is killed, and then he takes Bathsheba to be his wife. Sometime later, Nathan the prophet comes and visits, and he tells David this story about a poor man 
who had a little ewe lamb that he loved so much, so much so that he let this little lamb drink out of his own cup and sleep in his own bed. It says he treated her like a daughter. Another rich man in that town had many sheep and many cattle, but when a traveler came to visit, that rich man took the poor man's lamb rather than one of his own and had it prepared for the traveler. David, furious when he hears this story, says, As surely as the Lord lives, this man must die. He must pay for that lambs four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Nathan says to David, you are the man. As horrible as what David did was, it takes him totally getting outside of himself to be able to really see it. It's what brings him to repent to acknowledge and accept responsibility. How Nathan helps get him there is actually a device that we see in ancient literature, and it's called the parabolic trap. The parabolic trap is a device used to help the characters, or us, the listeners, overcome that tendency to make excuses and exceptions for oneself, even as we are holding others to a higher standard. As the SALT commentary says, we are lured into judging someone else only to discover, lo and behold, that we ourselves are the ones we have judged. It's a powerful form of accountability, being taken to task not by someone else's sense of right and wrong, but by our own. It's background that we need to have to be able to think about our gospel reading today. In this strange and unsettling story, an owner sends messengers to collect produce from the tenants who are taking care of his vineyard. But each one, they beat or kill or stone. Finally, he sends his son, and they kill him too. In the plainest terms, the messengers in the parable are like the prophets and John the Baptist, who came before Jesus with God's message, and who were rejected or killed. The owner's son refers to Jesus himself, who will also soon be killed. The religious leaders are like the tenants who reject the messenger, Jesus, and are implicated in his death. Now, with that said, we must take care, since this passage can and has been read in a way that's anti-Semitic. Not to mention, historically, it has been used as a case for supersessionism or the idea that Christians have superseded Jews as heirs of God's covenant. As the commentary notes, on the contrary, the prophetic line drawn here is not between Jews and Christians or between Jesus followers and non-Jesus followers, but rather between those who bear fruit or produce the fruit of the kingdom, and those who do not. Jesus does not draw the line in terms of what we today would call religious affiliation. On the contrary, like the prophets before him, he draws the line in terms of action. Indeed, the prophetic witness to the people 
is about the fruit their lives produce. Do their deeds reflect justice and mercy and humility? Those with power and privilege, like the religious leaders who are hearing this story, often didn't want to hear that message that would threaten their comfortable life, the status quo, and meant, uh, that meant to raise up everyone into equity. That message, which was a calling back to God that asks, are you loving? Are you living well? Are you living in harmony with the world and your creator? Are you living in the abundant promise where your life is the fertile place that God hopes for God's children? It is good news in that it is calling us back into wholeness. Most importantly, though, and more important than our ability to get the message and to follow it, this parable is about the relentless pursuit of the owner. The owner sends a message. It's not heard and worse. And so he sends it again and again until finally he shares it at the greatest cost. He sends his son another chance, an enduring love and hope demonstrated each time that message is sent. God calls us to act in ways that do bear fruit, of justice, humility, and mercy. But God's grace always has the final word. How do we know? For one, the judgment in this passage, that line where the religious leaders say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death, comes from the religious leaders, not God, not Jesus. Just as it is David who is the one who says that the rich man in the parable deserves to die. Two, in the parable, the owner very easily could have responded with retribution to the tenants for killing the messengers. Just as God could have responded with wrath for the prophets rejected and killed, instead God sends God's own child. Thirdly, the reference to Psalm 118 that's in the passage, you can read that part. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone is a reminder, like the story of Joseph from a few weeks ago, that what is meant for evil, God uses for good. Additionally, God's relentlessly gracious nature shown in the parable means that it is never too late. As Archbishop Desmond Tutu once said, there is no one who is untransfigurable, no one who cannot change course and bear good fruit, no one beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. And lastly, we see it how in the tradition of the parabolic trap, it doesn't typically end with condemnation or a sentencing. Rather, it ends with divine mercy like with David, who is forgiven. This pattern suggests that the religious leaders will likewise be mercifully welcomed in the end, both forgiven and even empowered to go and bear that good fruit. To quote the commentary once more, indeed, the entire passion narrative itself is a version of just this kind of inclusive, 
merciful, dazzling reversal. Human beings betray and deny and desert and bear responsibility for the murder of God's child. And yet God forgives us and even gracefully and mind-bogglingly incorporates our attempts to reject God into the larger story of divine mercy and redemption. What can we say except it is amazing in our eyes? What can we do except sing the old hymn of God's amazing grace that saved a wretch like me? The parabolic trap is employed precisely because we have a hard time looking at ourselves accurately, seeing ourselves as something other than the hero, which we come by very honestly. When we mess up in this world, more often than not, we are not met with empathy or understanding or even fairness. No wonder we go to such lengths to see ourselves in a good light. No wonder we have those knee-jerk responses when we are confronted that say, I didn't do that, I'm not that. Deny and deflect. But it doesn't need to be that way with God. God's grace welcomes our whole selves. Grace creates a safe space where we can say, we messed up. Or, God, help me understand. Help me learn from this. God's grace lets us welcome whatever we need to see about ourselves and not be afraid of it. Because God's love and mercy will be there with us no matter what. It's not contingent on our actions. It is a hospitable place to seek the deepest possible understanding of ourselves and of the world. Better than being the hero of our own story, a heavy burden, if we think about it, is to be the one who is saved. Saved from the ego, the false self, the illusion. Saved by a relentlessly gracious God who keeps sending those messengers to let us know you are loved. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are marked as Christ's own forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast offering from All Saints Episcopal Church in Portland. For more resources from All Saints or to support this or our many other outreach ministries, please visit allsaintspdx.org.